Hello, this is Ian Beckles, and you're listening to Cigar City Radio. Cigar City Radio is sponsored by No Clubs and StateMedia.com. Find out about upcoming concerts in Tampa Bay by visiting StateMedia.com and tagging No Clubs on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Use the hashtag WeAreConcerts. Next up for No Clubs, Friday, November 16th, the main squeeze is at the Orpheum. And then Saturday, November 17th, another two-show night, a Treyu with Memphis Mayfire is going to be at the Ritz Ebor. And then down the street at the Orpheum, you can catch Magic City Hippies and Bay Ledges. Wednesday, November 21st, a three-show night with Red Sun Rising at the Orpheum, May Day Parade at the Ritz Ebor, and across the bay at Janus Live, VNV Nation will be there. So Wednesday, November 21st, big night, three shows. Should be a lot of fun. Which one are you going to go to? Tuesday, November 27th, Minus the Bear will be at the Ritz Ebor. Also just announced, no name, January 18th. Lots of cool shows announced for next year. Go on to uh, statemedia.com and check all those out. We'll be telling you all about them in future eps. Welcome to Cigar City Radio, episode number 87. The song you just heard was Wrong Side of the Tracks by the legendary Tampa band Stranger off the album No Rules, which until recently was not available on the internet. You couldn't get it on Spotify. You couldn't get it on Apple Music. You couldn't get it anywhere. But we linked up with Greg Billings from Stranger and made sure that that was no longer the case. So now you can listen to Stranger, all their albums, No Rules, Angry Dogs, No More Dirty Deals, and everything else from the Stranger Band on Spotify, on Apple Music, the original recordings, thanks to us and thanks to Greg Billings. You're welcome. Yes. So go and listen to them now. That was Wrong Side of the Tracks. Perfect segue into another great Tampa legend who we're going to talk to on this episode. I'm your host, Randy Ojeda, and making the magic happen, a man who always gives 101, Mr. Jason Solanas. Hey, Randy, speaking of giving 101, what do you think about a man wrapping his around a golf ball and using the pressure of the launch it? No, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to stop you right there. The thought's in your head now, though. Yeah, unfortunately, it is. (laughs) Imagine that on a golf course. Oh, God. 
Our guest on this episode is author Scott M. Ditchie, who wrote a fantastically titled book called Cigar City Mafia, A Complete History of the Tampa Underworld. He also wrote The Silent Dawn, The Criminal Underworld of Santo Traficante Jr. He wrote several other books, including his newest one, Garden State Gangland, The Rise of the Mob in New Jersey. So as you can tell, Scott is a historian and an expert on the mafia and organized crime. He also hosts Cigar City Magazine's Tampa Mafia Tour, which takes place in Ybor City. It's an hour and a half to two hour walking tour. The 2018 dates are totally booked up, but they're going to be booking 2019 tour dates soon. You can go to CigarCityMagazine.com to book one of those tours. They meet outside of King Corona Cigar Shop on 7th Avenue. It's a really awesome tour. And, uh, you know, there's not cigar smoke involved. So if you're if you're not into the cigar smoke part of it, you'll survive. You'll survive. It's mostly about the mob. And uh, Scott also is involved in the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. So if you can't make it out to Tampa or if you're closer to Las Vegas and you want to know more about the mob, check out the Mob Museum. I've never been, but it sounds really awesome. Scott talks about it in this interview. They're also starting to do tours to Cuba, which sounds like an amazing opportunity. So I, I'm just, I'm rambling on. I'm going to let Scott do the talking in this episode. He tells us all about the cool stuff that he's involved in. And we learned a lot from him. This is a really special episode for us because I mean, Hey, we're cigar city management. We're called cigar city radio. The first time I ever heard the phrase cigar city was this book sitting on my dad's shelf, cigar city mafia. So thank you, Scott, for coming on the show and talking to us. Hopefully we'll have you on again because we just scratched the surface of his music knowledge. I didn't realize that Scott was such a metalhead metal until the end of the episode where he finally told us that his favorite band from Tampa is oh shit I'm not going to spoil it for you listen to it so here it is episode number 87 actually ask you about the Cigar City Mafia name, you know, and where that came from. When I was writing the book, when I started doing research for it and started writing it, um, it's like sometime in the late 90s, right around the turn of the 2000s, um, I threw out some names of a book and, and I was going to go with the working title was Garden, or excuse me, was uh, Cigar City Gangsters. And that was the working title all the way up through it being purchased by the publisher. And then they came back with, oh, this is a little punchy. Let's do Cigar City Mafia. So when that came out in uh, in 04, uh, January of 2004, it's, man, it's been, <laughs> it's been 14 years already. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that was the title. So Cigar City Mafia stuck. Then, then after that, um, uh, the Tampa Bay Roller Derby League, the Cigar City Mafia team started, which um, I went to a lot of their games early on. That was very cool. And uh, yeah. Um, yeah, they reached out to me and said, yeah, we we're big fans of the book. So that name came. And then, uh, th then you know, Cigar City itself, the moniker has been around forever. So as you, you know, you guys have this, Cigar City Brewing, obviously. It's mm -hmm. a Cigar City Magazine, which Lisa Figueredo started. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a really cool nickname for the city, much better than so many other, you know, nicknames of other cities yeah, around, totally the, around the country. So I think it's great that it's being embraced and, and uh, 
and grabbed onto for sure. Yeah, I love that. You know, and that's one of the things like when we, you know, named our show Cigar City Radio, like we wanted to make sure that we're putting Tampa and this area, you know, at the forefront yeah. of everything we do. Absolutely. You know? And I, and I think the name, you know, like I said, I don't know when the name started to be honest with you. I, I saw references to, you know, going back a long time, but yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a great, great nickname. And, and certainly, uh, certainly it, you know, promotes the brand of Tampa and, and from a variety of different perspectives. So. Definitely. Yeah. And people ask us sometimes, they're like, how do you get away with that? Like, doesn't Cigar City Brewing own the name? And I was like, no, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like Big Apple or Windy City or yeah. something where it's uh, like. You just can't you know, make a beer called right. Cigar City. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You'll probably and be fine. <laughs> no, we're not. We're, if, we, if we wanted to make a beer, they would be the first people we'd call to make that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. But, you know, there's tons of like, there's, my cousin has a Cigar City clothing company and there's uh, Cigar City, you know, barbershop and Cigar, Cigar City, City marketing, Cigar City salsa, which is really good. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But I think, I honestly think that, uh, this book kind of popularized the name in a way, you know, I don't know if you want to take that much credit for it, but sure for I'll me, <laughs> why not? For me, it was my first real, uh, uh you know, cause so I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to make you feel old or anything, but when the book came out, I was in high school, I was in high school. So, mm-hmm. um, so that was my kind of introduction into Cigar City and obviously like just the whole Cigar City underworld, which I didn't know was a even a thing until until the book. Yeah, a lot of people don't, especially people that didn't grow up here or, or grew up here, you know, not in the you know 30s, 40s, 50s, grew up here much later. Uh, it, and with all the transplants that are coming here, um, there are a lot of people that aren't aware of that that history. Yeah. And it's an important part of the history. Uh, there's, there's some people around, some... Old timers are still kind of, you know, chafe at that and, and chafe at the book and when I'm doing my Ebor tours, but it's an integral part of the history of of Tampa, the political history of Tampa, the economic history of Tampa. It, a lot of that ties together with it. So if you don't understand that aspect, and I understand it and the fact that a lot of people don't want that promoted, but... Like anywhere you, any city you go, there's crime tours, there's ghost tours. I mean, we, you know, we have this gigantic celebration celebrating a fictional pillaging pirate. So come on. I mean, that's, that doesn't really hold a lot of water with me. And it's not like you're, you're promoting it from, from a glamour aspect. You're promoting it because it's really interesting part of the city that a lot of people really like reading and going on tours, uh, those kind of things. And, you know, true crime is always very popular no yeah. matter what. So actually on the podcast side, true crime podcasts are the oh, most absolutely, popular yeah. genre of podcasting. Mm-hmm. So people love that. Yeah. So why Tampa, you know, like why of all cities to have this kind of history, you know, there's, there's only, I guess there's only a few like kind of mafia cities and I guess, you know, Tampa's not like a Philadelphia or a New York, but you know, yeah, so at the at the height, there uh, there was at least twenty six to thirty cities around the country where there were functioning mafia families. Certainly, by the time the mafia became uh, kind of what we know as the modern crime families, there was about twenty six to twenty eight, uh, depending on who you ask. The mafia families around the country, most of them were like Tampa; they were smaller, so they were only really kind of the New York, Chicago, Detroit, the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Um, Tampa developed kind of as a twist of fate with the cigar industry coming here. Um, you had, uh, you know, you had the immigration here, Cuban, Spanish, uh, German. You also had some Sicilian immigration here and in, into, uh, Tampa, Ybor city specifically. And there in that group, there were people affiliated with, with organized crime. And, and you, you start seeing this in the 19 teens with some black hand, um, extortion activities here in Ybor. 
And we get our first inkling, really, of the nationwide scope where Tampa sat in 1928 uh, in Cleveland. There was a, a meeting of bootleggers from around the country, and two Tampa guys were there, Tampa grocer Ignacio Italiano uh, and a Tampa restaurant owner, Joe Vaglica. And um, they were arrested, and their mugshots were taken, and they all said they were just going up there to buy olive oil. Right, of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, other people at that meeting was Joe Profaci, who founded one of the New York Five families in New York. So, you know, going back all the way back to the 1920s, you see the, the Tampa crime figures kind of tied in with that national scale. Um, so it was really that immigrant community and that the cigar industry here, the Medibor, what it is, and that criminal element kind of, you know, piggybacked on that. So was so was Ignacio Italiano? He was the first like kind of real Tampa mob boss. If yeah, you say. from based on the information I have, and it's very sparse back uh-huh. then. He was probably the first what you call the first major mafia boss of the Sicilian mafia, but the first major crime boss in Tampa by far uh, was Charlie Wall. Okay, he really was the first what you would call like the underworld kingpin. So he he controlled far more than than the Sicilians did at that point. Um, he had you know, the judiciary in his pocket. He was controlling elections. He had prostitution, uh, narcotics trafficking, bootlegging, gambling. Uh, he pretty much had it all for for a good twenty, about twenty twenty five years before he was deposed. Yeah, that seems like a long time in the, kind of the span of like running a a crime syndicate or a crime organization like. 20, 25 years seems like a longer shelf life than most of these guys had. Yeah. Well, let's scale back from, let's say about 2015 to 20, okay. 2025, yeah. but, um, I just did some quick math in my head. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> sure. Uh, but no, it is regardless. And, and I think there was a few things going on at that point. One, he was, um, he was very connected politically. Mm-hmm. Um, number two is that he was, he was kind of well-liked. He, from contemporary accounts, he was one, especially, during the early years of the Depression, would go around giving kids gold coins and setting up soup kitchens and and, and kind of cultivating that Robin Hood gangster figure. Um, he controlled a lot of what people considered the harmless vices, the gambling, the prostitution, although he did uh, – he was center in a major narcotics ring that operated out of Ybor City. Um, he himself was a morphine addict. But I think his political connections and his his sway over the upper world really kind of kept him, uh, I don't want to say kept him at bay, but certainly kept him from the scrutiny that he probably would have gotten, uh, say, had he come to power like in the 70s or 80s when there was far, far more law enforcement attention on that. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. He was probably, it was probably much easier to like pay off law enforcement or somebody back mm, then than it, yeah. than it became, you know. Um, and... So, but he got like his throat cut or something, right? Wasn't it like yeah, something ni- crazy like that? Like something very mafia movie-esque? Yeah. So in 1955, long after he had kind of faded from the scene, he was still around in Tampa. And one night he was at a, a, a mob bar, the Dream Bar on Nebraska. And he was driven home by a guy named Nick Scaglione, who was a mafia figure. And his wife was on vacation. She came home a couple of days later and he was in the back room of their house with his throat cut and his head was bashed in with a... Um, with like a blackjack. Oh. And, um, you know, 
he definitely knew his killers because it was all the way in the back room of his house. So he let him in. And before he passed away, I had the opportunity to talk to Ellis Clifton, who was a cop who was one of the first on the scene, and he investigated the murder, which is still a cold case. It's open. But he he identified three suspected mafia figures that that he was pretty much convinced were the ones that did the killing at the behest of Santo Traficante Jr., um, but you know, never had enough evidence. And like I said, it's still considered a, an, an open cold case, if you will, in, in Tampa PD. Yeah. And that, that actually kind of brings me to something I've, I've always wondered is, you know, what writing a book like this, it's probably the most comprehensive, you know, recollection of the Tampa mafia history. So what, like, what kind of sources did you have to find and, and dig up to, to get this history? Cause like you said, even early on, there wasn't a lot available. So was it mostly talking to, you know, law enforcement or people that were working at the time or how did you, how did you put this together? Yeah, I was uh, talking a lot of law enforcement. It was hard to get other people to talk, and 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 I'll get to that point at the end how that's changed over the years. Yeah, um, that's what I could imagine too. Like, I mean, I feel like a lot of people for saying some of this stuff could get you know their throats cut. You know. Yeah, and a lot of it too is is Tampa being a very small community. A lot of these people knew each other and grew up together with each other, and uh, they're a little hesitant to talk about. Then I understand, uh, you know, I understand that for sure. So when I was approaching the first book, you gotta you gotta realize I started in like nine. 94. So, um, 94, 95. And it was really kind of a part-time thing. It was just kind of, I'm kind of interested in, so let me see where this goes. Uh, so it was going to the library, digging through old newspaper clippings, going to back when the Tampa Tribune building was there on the river, going in their original archives and looking through reporters' notes and newspapers, uh, writing handwritten letters to the FBI for FOII, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, getting yeah. redacted files back. So it was kind of a laborious process, a lot of looking to the National Archives I went to and, and you know the local library. And I was still kind of limited by what I had. Um, and, and law enforcement, I, I met some law enforcement uh, people retired as well who were very uh, very giving of their time and, and materials as well. So... Um, so, you know, let's say I ended research for that particular book right around 2002 and then started writing it. Um, nowadays things have changed. Well, the one thing that changed dramatically is after Cigar City Mafia came out, a lot more people were open to talking with me. So I used a lot, like for the Silent Dawn, the second book, I used a lot more primary sources, people giving me information and stories. And over the years, a few things, I've cultivated lines of sources and communication, which is good, but so much more is available now online. Um, it's so much easier to get stuff. It's so much easier to request stuff, to find stuff, vital records, FBI records. Um, there's been a treasure trove of material that's been released over the years that's um, made its way into some online databases, unredacted. I mean, pretty much most ma- most mafia surveillance files from the FBI from the 60s to early 70s are available online now. Um, so it's made it a lot easier and a lot more um, efficient for someone like me that writes as a side job. So now I can you know, turn around and do that research, which took me like five or six years in a year. Yeah. So it's, you know, sometimes it's fun digging through the old stuff, looking for it. Like I went down to the Dade County archives and literally hand filing through file cabinets looking for stuff, which was cool. But there's something to be said about pressing a button and finding, doing finding, a search yeah. function and finding it right Just away. Deleting the tedium. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Who who were some of the more interesting primary sources, if if you're allowed to say? I don't know. Uh, just um, uh, there were a couple FD, Florida Department of Law Enforcement agents that had spent a lot of time investigating organized crime. Uh, one that went undercover. They were very interesting to talk to. Um, retired FBI agents tend to be pretty good fountains of information. They they won't say a word when they're on the job, but once they retire, um, I found some really good sources that and. Uh, um, relatives of people I've written about have contacted me over the years, uh, telling me stories. Um, I've met a couple guys I've written about. They won't talk, <laughs> but uh, I've met them. And uh, I've met other organized crime figures that either in a witness protection program, others from other parts of the country. Um, and that's been helpful for other books. Um, yeah. You know, the Jersey book, I met some Jersey guys. I spent a lot of time last year with, a, with an individual named Myron Sugarman who has his own book out. And he was a Jewish gangster in New Jersey. And, um, you know, so using some of those sources, some of law, you know, if you just use law enforcement, you get their perspective. You just use the wise guys, you get their perspective. So you got to kind of, you know, as a writer, you're limited by the information you have to make it work. So I try as hard as I can to get as much as I can and, and try to make it accurate. There, there's a lot of stuff, especially when you're writing about the mafia over the years that become like kind of like the myth of the mob. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like how close... How close is it, in your opinion, to the the movies? You know, like is is good. What's the most accurate mafia movie? Uh, based on people that I've talked to, what I've seen, and you know, something like Goodfellas is pretty accurate. Yeah, you know, that's all. That's like, what I've heard. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah, you're flying high one day, you know, eating at these fancy restaurants. Next year, you know, trying to you know get the cocaine out of that <laughs> you just flushed down the toilet out because you need the cash. It's you know, it, it kind of showed a little bit of the drudgery and the the day to day working. Um, one wise guy who I've known really well for a number of years really recommended this this lost movie. I want to call it lost movie, lesser known early '70s movie with Robert Mitchum called "The Friends of Eddie Coyle." It's really about a low level guy in the Boston underworld. It's a fantastic movie, and he said that kind of captures some of that like scheming for a buck kind of feel um, that a lot of those guys have. Whereas The Godfather is the opposite end, you know, the kind of the more glamorous, the poetic, operatic side of it. Yeah. Yeah, it makes everything seem grand, even while people are getting gunned down. And exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. I'd never heard of that that movie, so I'm gonna yeah, have to definitely check it out. It's um, it was made in a, uh, I think it's like '72 or '73, and really that kind of gritty '70s feel to it. That's awesome. What's your personal favorite mafia movie? Goodfellas. Goodfellas. Yeah, that was the one that kind of got me when I saw that in the movies. That was one that kind of got me started on reading about the mob, which got me started about reading about the mob in Tampa. And then that kind of kickstarted the obsession. And you know, I just watched it recently again. And it just, it, there's not a wasted second in that movie yeah. from a, even from an artistic perspective, from filmmaking wise, it's, you know, pretty close to flawless. And the Godfather epic, I'll call it, is a close second. That's the one where they take one and two and kind of mix them together and have the linear story. That's great. Yeah, if you have yeah. seven hours, uh, yeah, seven hours to kill. Yeah. That's something my dad would do like every weekend if he could is just watch the Godfather yeah. over and over again. Um, so are you from Tampa originally? Is that? No, I'm from New Jersey. Oh, well, there you <laughs> yeah. go. Uh, yeah, I came down here for, to Eckerd College. I got a degree in marine science. Moved back up north for a little bit. and But I've been down here since 95 over in St. Pete. So. So that's what that's where the interest came from was just already kind of yeah it was already area. there and I got back down here uh, and I, I actually met a, a gentleman David Critchley uh, on the internet has, has to be like early ninety five like maybe they're early to mid ninety five and there was a, a guy had like a, a text only mafia website and um, 
I was corresponding uh, with uh, David over in the UK, and he said, "Hey, I have these congressional hearings from Tampa, the Kefauver Commission." He said, "I know, I, you know, I see you're back in that area. Would you be interested in in reading these?" I said, "Yeah." So he sent me these photocopies, and it was, you know, the stories of Charlie Wall and the, these war for control of gambling in Tampa, and it was you know, dozens of gangland hits. And I was like, "Oh, this is really interesting." Um, so that kind of that was a, that kind of really started the ball rolling on the, the Tampa focus. That's really cool. And I think it's interesting. You talked about how like small of a community Tampa is, and it kind of still is in a way. Um, and I think it's funny to like uh, go back and read the book and like see, you know, names and people that I, that we know, you know, like um, somebody who's mentioned a few times in the book is uh, an old family friend of ours, EJ Salcinas, yeah, who was the attorney general at the time. I think it was like the, the Badami organization. Mm-hmm. And, um, do you have you have that story in the book about how somebody came to his house and like offered him like seventy five thousand dollars or something like that to drop the law, you know, drop the suit against somebody else that was connected to the organization. And, um, you know, that like I've heard I've heard those stories kind of through him as well. So it's interesting to like, you know, know somebody that's like been a central part in like in this whole, this whole thing. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. And especially with the political, there's like, you know, I, I get asked a lot about Dick Greco, but uh, you know, there's no evidence that he was ever tied to them, but they grew up together. So he knew these guys. Yeah. Um, I, I know police officers who ended up going, you know, arresting guys. They grew up in the same neighborhood with, uh, both here in Tampa and up, you know, in New Jersey, New York city, or they grew up in these, whether it's a tight knit neighborhood or a tight knit city, you know, one becomes the cop, one becomes the gangster kind of thing. So, yeah. um, yeah, you, you know, and that's one thing I try to look at with with allegations against you know political figures too. A lot of it's just you know you're being a politician, you shake everybody's yeah, hand. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty fascinating stuff, especially from kind of the outside looking in. Although you know I've been here now 25 years, uh, you know, almost. So uh, I'd like to think that I have a, a little bit better understanding of, of the local uh, scene. Yeah, I would hope uh, so. Yeah, after that, after so long, right? Yeah. yeah, and I've been doing uh, tours in Ybor City. We do uh, mafia walking tours. Yeah, I was going to ask month. about that yeah. next, actually. was So tell us a little bit about the walking tour. Yeah, like, what sure. is, where does been, it start? I've been doing this for about 10 years now. We start, we usually meet at King Corona. Uh, we, we go from September to, to May. Start. In fact, uh, our fall, uh, our fall uh, tours are sold out but if, if you're interested you go to cigar city magazine website on the events page we, we post the dates up there you can buy the tickets right online yeah, it's about an hour and a half to two hour walking tour it's about a mile and change loop around ebor and we, we hit about anywhere from 10 to 12 spots depending on accessibility on on a couple of them but basically talk about the uh the history of organized crime in tampa um and there's a lot of places here in, in ebor city that were were um, uh, pivotal in the growth of organized crime operations, not only in, in Tampa, but uh, we tie it back to Havana as well as some other places. So without obviously giving away the whole tour, you know, what's, what are some key spots that, you know, people can be on the lookout for if they're in Ebor? And say, yeah, well, you know, we talk about the Columbia restaurant being kind of a hangout for a lot of the wise guys. We go by two places uh, off the beaten path that were sites of pretty major mafia hits. Um, uh, we go up on 15th street, what's left of the yellow house. Um, which is a kind of basically a shell of a building across street from Hillsborough Community College. Um, there's a few areas around uh, the Los, Lo- Los Novedades, the El Pasaje, Ybor Square in that area that we talk about. So uh, we, we kind of start in the older part and then get down, you know, kind of past the Italian club and talk about the Columbia. So it's, it's pretty comprehensive. And I, 
Uh, depending on my crowd, if I have people that, a lot of people that didn't grow up in Tampa, I'll throw some just general Tampa history so they kind of, you know, can have a little bit of frame of reference of, of what we're discussing. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause but, yeah, uh, it, it's pretty tied together. I guess like the whole kind of uh, Ebor city history and and how the the mafia kind of came to be. Cause like you said, it was the, you know, the Italian Sicilian immigrants mixing with like the Cuban immigrants mm-hmm. and all these people and all these different cultures kind of coming to an area and, you know, looking to gain some kind of power and control. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's definitely very unique. Yeah. Um, what, what, oh, sorry. I totally just had a brain. <laughs> totally just had a like okay. a, a brain fart. Uh, Jason, you got something? I know you've. I know you've been looking like you were. What uh? So you write and you do the tours in Ebor, but you have a degree in marine biology. Yes. Yeah, that's my so day job. What uh? What would be your title for your day job? Just as a curiosity. Uh, well, I used to be a fishery. I used to say I would be a fish biologist, environmental scientist, but now I, I do a lot of management. So I'm a project, environmental project manager would probably be a, a pretty accurate title. Okay. So what, uh, what does your day-to-day work process involve? Uh, I, it's anywhere from being a, a guidance counselor to a firefighter. I'm either putting out fires <laughs> or uh, letting... Um, yeah. So, yeah, so we do a lot. So I work, uh, I manage a... Uh, environmental group for a, an engineering consulting firm. We do a lot of work for municipalities throughout Florida uh, and in Tampa Bay. Uh, a couple projects I've done, I've managed recently. We did a water resources plan for Lowry Park Zoo. We're doing some work now for the city of St. Pete uh, on sea level rise. Uh, done some water quality work in Tampa Bay for the Tampa Bay Estuary Program. Uh, so we do a lot of uh, stormwater, water quality work. That's my area of expertise as well, some ecological work. And then we do work for the water management districts and stuff. So it's it's extremely varied. Every day is just something completely different. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. So um, your day from beginning to end, do you spend time after your work day researching and writing? Or do you cut out parts of your week specifically to that? Yeah, if um, right now I'm kind of on a sabbatical right now um, for a couple of reasons. I've, I've been, wrote about three books in a row, so I just needed a, some breathing space and mm-hmm. also work. Day job is getting real busy now, so um, I just needed a, about a year off right now. But when I'm working on a book or say, you know, say I sell a book tomorrow and I have to get it into the publisher by this time next year, well, I'll start uh, in my head kind of planning how I'm going to do it. I, I generally write at night. Um, I don't think I would have been a good writer in the era of typewriters. I'm very much a cut and paste kind of, let me write bit and pieces and kind of put it together. Um, But I I generally do my best writing at night. And um, and I'll also, in terms of the research, I'll I'll, I'll kind of do a research plan of how I'm going to get the information I need. Now, even though I'm on sabbatical, I'm always collecting stuff. So sometimes if I have an hour or something on the computer, I'll go do some research on some stuff that I've I think I might want to write about or explore in the future and then pull that stuff in. Uh, and I also, you know, I'm doing writings. I write blog posts for the Mob Museum in Las Vegas for their website. I just did one on a mob family in San Jose, California, another one people probably don't know anything about. Um, so I'm, I'm still constantly keeping, you know, keep my eye out of what's out there. So, Are you ever worried that somebody's going to? come in in the middle of the night and no (laughs) i write about mostly historical stuff yeah uh, and traditionally the american mafia hasn't been that way towards journalists uh you know i'm not writing about the mexican cartels or anything like that that's you know that's 
that's a level of involvement and in, that I wouldn't get myself into. Um, just, and it doesn't really interest me. I'm more, more of the historical stuff that that's the stuff that I think kind of really, uh, really has, has a lot more appeal to me as a writer. Yeah. Besides um, there, there's some really good authors doing the other stuff. Have you ever considered doing like current history involved with the mafia? Some of my books bleed into the current, like the New Jersey one. I talk about some more current kind of stuff. Um, and, and some of the families, the smaller ones like a Tampa or if I were to do something on like San Jose or something, there's just no current stuff because it's yeah. kind of faded away. Yeah. But yeah, the uh, you know the Jersey mob book I kind of brought up to date, just talking about just general overall trends in organized crime in, in Jersey. So some of it would, does bleed over into the new, newer stuff. But even with the newer stuff, I'm not like going out there and, and – and, uh, you know, confronting guys on the street or doing that kind of that gotcha journalism with them. It's more of looking at, you know, available information, law enforcement or interviewing people yeah. and getting that kind of stuff. No man on the street mafia style. No, 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 no. Um, yeah, no. Yeah, probably for the best. Hey, what do you think about killing that guy? Yeah. yeah. Although I've taken some tour. It was funny. I just uh, I was out in Vegas uh, at the Mod Museum this past year. I did a uh, an event out there. Um and I'll throw a quick plug in because I'm on their advisory board. Uh, if you're in Vegas in downtown, the old Las Vegas, the Mob Museum in here is uh, absolutely fantastic if you're at all interested in this stuff. But we took a tour with Frank Collada, who was one of Tony Spilotro's right-hand men, and he's featured prominently in the movie Casino, his character. And, uh, you know, he's taken us around all Las Vegas to all the places he used to be, and he's like, yeah. I remember when I first killed that guy over there. And, I, and it's just like, oh, matter of fact, this. <laughs> It's kind of interesting. It was a great tour. I'd, I'd recommend that Frank Collada's tour as well. Anyone in Vegas? Yeah, I, I I didn't know that was a that was even there, but that sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because I mean Vegas obviously has to have one of the most extensive histories outside of like a New York or, or Chicago or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, it's like most places, a lot of that history is gone away. So get go see it while you can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. I know you mentioned like Tampa was kind of connected with some other cities where the, was it, were there like mafia family, like snowbirds kind of thing where people would like come from New York and come down to Tampa to, you know, to, to do escape the winter. Yeah. To escape the winter. Um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that was really Miami. Uh, okay. The Miami area, even the Tampa guys. So Santo Traficante had a house in Miami, pretty much every major mob figure from Pittsburgh to Cleveland, Boston, Buffalo, they were all down in Miami. Um, I, I have a report from the mid '80s. The FBI identified over 600 made guys and about, you know, 2,000 associates operating in uh, Dade, Broward counties, um, and a lot of them were snowbirds that came down. Uh, so, uh, South Florida is considered open territory, so anyone can go down there and kind of work. So, but that's yeah. interesting. How is it like designated like that? Like. Uh, at an early meeting of the mob, I okay. guess they all kind of said, hey, it's open. Yeah, because the New York guys started going down there first, um, and then everyone started trickling in. And I, th I think, like Las Vegas, they didn't have mm -hmm. their own mafia family internally. So they, they kind of designated a place where they can all kind of you know run different scams or just go on vacation, and nobody would kind of step on each other's toes. That's That's crazy. That's crazy that it, I guess, you know, that's the organized part of organized crime. But it is amazing that it is actually organized in that yeah, way yeah. and that they would meet and make these rules, you know, like they're, you know, the little rascals or something, you know, like, OK, <laughs> no, no girls allowed. Nobody allowed, you know, nobody takes over Miami kind of thing. Like, yeah, they, they had some weird rules like that. So that's amazing. That is like I can't even fathom that. It was also amazing to me that like 
Um, I clerked for a judge while I was in law school in Philadelphia. Um, and there were a lot of like, like that summer, I guess there were a couple, uh, mafia, you know, made men connected people who were like under indictment for whatever Mm -hmm. federal indictment. And like seeing that, like there's still an active mafia community or organized crime family, like in, in New Jersey, in Philadelphia, in that area, like amazes me that in 2018, this can still occur, you know? Yeah. I, I, I say that a lot of my talks. I said, it's, you know, everyone says the mob's still around. I said, yeah, you know, the, the, the FBI have been after him for 30 years and it, they've done a very good job at knocking them out in a lot of the U.S. I said, but here we are in 2018 and we're still talking about these. Earlier this year, I was in New York and I went to the skinny Joey Merlino trial there, you know, okay. the ex-Philly yeah. boss who actually had a hit, a restaurant with his name in, in Boca Raton for a while. I think it just closed down last year, but, uh, yeah, so it, there, man, there's still a lot of that going on up there in the Northeast. Yeah, but less of it here is what you're saying. It, yeah, not much in Tampa. And you still see it in South Florida with a lot of the snowbirds, although it's moved out of Dade County. It's more um, like Palm Beach and, and uh, Broward County now. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. That's interesting. But but nothing here that you know of. That I know of. I think it's, <laughs> it, well, I mean, some of the old time guys are still around, but it's it's kind of faded away. Yeah. What is your... Like if you're, if you're trying to sell somebody on, uh, you know, the mafia in Tampa, what's, what's the number one story or like the, the highlight of the, the Tampa mafia world? Well, I think you'd have to tie that into Cuba and say, did you know the boss of the Tampa mafia was offered a hundred thousand dollars by the CIA to kill Castro? Really? So, there. I, I think that's a pretty good elevator pitch. There, yeah. So <laughs> I did not know that. Quite quick. Yeah. yeah. So that, that to me is, uh, you know, if you were to differentiate it than any other family, that, that's a, that's a pretty good one there to throw out. And why was that? Was it just because, you know, the, the Cuban connection? Yeah. Cause of the Cuban connection. Cause Traficante owned a lot of property in Cuba that was seized by when Castro took over. Uh, he was jailed by Castro and, uh, the CIA was looking for any in and knowing that organized crime had a lot of connections still on the island and, you know, lost a lot when Castro took over that they could leverage that to their advantage. And, you know, I think it's pretty well known now. It certainly wasn't known back then, you know, late fifties, early sixties, the CIA, you know, did a lot of under the radar stuff that black ops type stuff. So. Yeah. The stuff that they're, that they make, you know, mission impossible movies. Exactly. Now, you know, (laughs) that kind of stuff was actually happening back then. Yeah. You know, absolutely. That's the height of the cold war, you know, the Russians going to be here at our back door and obviously with the Cuban missile crisis and all. So, yeah. And I guess, you know, Florida and, and Tampa, part of that is like uniquely positioned obviously to be a, a key player in that. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's amazing. So are, how do you feel about, uh, you know, the embargo being, being lifted in some ways? Yeah. I, so I've been to Cuba. I'm going again in October. This will be my fourth time. I, I, I think it's great to try to make that reproachment. Um, I know there's hard feelings, and I don't want to get dragged into political quagmire. But yeah, yeah, my family's Cuban, so I, my, you know, my grandfather would have totally different opinions. On yeah, this, but, but you know, I've met yeah. the people there. They're they're very pro U.S. The, the people on the street, mm-hmm. um, people I've interacted with, they don't have a lot. Um, I think, you know, with the Castros going and Raúl's like in his 90s, so he's you know he can't be around much longer. I know they have a new yeah. president now. I I, I think. Irrespective of whatever might have happened with those sonic attacks last year, um, uh, you know, I think moving forward with establishing relationships. Look, here's the bottom line: we, we have 
good political relationships with Saudi Arabia, with China. I mean, countries that do far worse. Mm-hmm. And we're fine with it, but Cuba, we're all up in arms over it. It just, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. But again, I'm coming from not a perspective of having had to live through. And and I feel for people that had to live through Batista and Castro both. I mean, Batista was, had his, you know, certain issues and, you know, Castro was, you know, had a ton. So I, I understand the the feelings on both sides, but just from an outside looking in, it'd be nice if we continue this and talking to the the young people there, especially they don't, they want that. They want to have the opportunities that, that we have here. Yeah. And I tell you what, it was funny. I, I got off the first time I went there, I packed, you know, my Cuba Vera shirt and dressed just like what I thought, you know, I see the all time Cubans here wearing, I got off in like everyone there is dressed like a European, like all the guys wearing the skinny jeans and uh, the Euro yeah. shirts. <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah. So you're just dressed like a Floridian tourist. Exactly. I, I stuck out so much. I was like, oh man, look. Because they get all the European tourists. But that, that's what that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Because if we're not trading with them, then they're getting clothes from somewhere else. Yeah. You know? So yeah. we do, we're doing a mob. We, we did a tour in February. We're doing one in October with the mob museum. We're, we're taking 10 people down and we're doing a tour of uh, like the Hotel Riviera, which was Lansky's place, some of Traficane's places and looking at uh, yeah. both the historic Cuba of Old Havana as well as the mob influence in some of the hotels. And that was some of the stuff they had in like The Godfather also, yeah, right? Absolutely, like, yeah, absolutely. And it was funny when I went down there, I wasn't sure how in Cuba they would view you know the, the mob's time down there. But in the, both the Hotel Nacional and the Seville Biltmore, uh, they have photos of Traficante on the wall and um, – even in the Hotel Nationale, they have like the wall of fame, they call it. And there's one section of just some of the mobsters that uh, that had visited there. So it was kind of interesting that they're at least partially embracing that that part of their history. So you're doing tours down in Cuba with people, like exclusive tours. Um, I have a few questions about that. Are those tours inclusive? Do you include airfare yes those are inclusive and they're run through a through an agency here in tampa that is licensed by the Mm -hmm. by the u.s to to do tours that meets all their requirements and you know we stay in private residence especially with the new trump regulations you can't stay in a lot of government-owned hotels um, or military-owned hotels so um this meets all the requirements for that that's really interesting what could someone expect to pay for a tour like this uh, 1500 it is a four three day three day two night tour and the night before we go down to cuba uh, we do the ybor city my tampa mafia tour and we'll talk about the ties and then the next morning we fly down it's a 55 minute southwest flight ah. down to havana you know that day so we try to make it a seamless thing like the night before you learn about the tampa then the cuban connection then you know next morning we're in havana is there a discount code for podcasters like us that might yeah, be interested in yeah. attending that? <laughs> if we could make a deal on some of this. Yeah, some of this dysfunctional gray yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure they would love to come too. You know? I need a bigger jacket so we can take that mirror. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we could do a podcast down in Cuba. How does that sound? That'd be great. Yeah. Well, uh, we're pretty much out of time, but just any final thoughts for our listeners or anything else you want to plug or... Uh, just mention well, my uh, scottditchie.com uh, s-c-o-t-t-d-e-i-t-c-h-e.com is my website uh, you can find all my books on amazon and uh that's it yeah oh do you want to ask me what my favorite tampa music was? yeah i wanted to ask, yeah let's talk about tampa music so what's your favorite uh band in tampa or what's your favorite place to see music in tampa let's start there. uh well i'm st pete guy so state theater 
for sure. Although okay. I, they're under renovations, I'll be curious to see when they're done. Uh, Janice Live has always been a favorite of mine. Um, not a big fan of a lot they've been booking lately, but uh, and then the Ritz Theater here, I like. Yeah, um, I'm getting older. I'm getting more into the comfort of, like, I'll go to the Orpheum or something if something's playing there. But yeah. You know, like the VIP section now a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> sure, um, yeah. I could tell you the worst place, although I did see Iron Maiden there and they sounded good, but Amelie Arena, some, the acoustics I think have gotten better there. Yeah, when they started, yeah. I think they were a little too cavernous. Uh, yeah, but, but arenas always kind of have that issue, you know? Yeah. And then we, you know, we're blessed with some, with three really good kind of like theater type place, Ruth Eckert Hall, uh, the Performing Arts Center in Mahaffey down yeah. at St. Pete. So um, those are really good places acoustic wise for seeing kind of those mid-level mid-level shows yeah yeah so oh man i'm, I'm bummed now that you're a saint pete guy i thought you know bummed I, no you, man i mean i like saint pete region. but this is Come our on. yeah it's this is our region. you know Mo- monday right. night at ruby's elixir sean green true we'll true that off. yeah Oh. So I'll, I'll tell you the best band ever to come out of Tampa. What's that? Obituary. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> That's true. We've actually been trying to get them on the podcast for a little while. Yeah, so. really, they're great. I saw them quite a few. I got my nose broken at one of their shows back when the Ritz was a masquerade. This is about 1990, 91. Yeah. Did you sneeze blood on people afterwards? No, but I, I like ran in and shoved toilet paper up my nose and ran back in because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss when they sang Chopped in Half, yeah. which is my favorite song. Uh, we we need him here for Ben Falgu. Yeah, uh, yeah, for, go, for good, go, uh, when we yeah. have Goat Horror on the podcast. I'd, I think it'd be be interesting to see you and him doing Taxidermy together. <laughs> That'd be fun. <laughs> That's awesome that you're a metalhead, though. Yeah, uh, where, where, I, yeah I grew up in Jersey in the 80s. It was yeah. kind of like required. Uh, Sabotage was the first band when Hall and Mountain King came out, or even like right before then, that kind of got the inkling that there was bands, you know, down south here. So when I came to Eckerd in 89, it was right when the whole scene started blowing up with the death metal, with, you know, Death Day aside, all those bands down yeah. here. And that, um, and we got a lot of good shows. Then, you know, and, and then I got really more into alternative indie stuff. And then for a while there, it was hard to find both good local bands and, and like, no acts came through here. You get like one out of 10 that would like yeah. come over to Tampa. But I think in the last decade, for sure, it's gotten a lot better. Uh, smaller bands as well as kind of like quasi, you know, national bands that aren't, haven't quite made it real big and usually would just like hit Atlanta, then go West. Yeah. Now coming down here to, to Tampa, which is great. It's super cool. Yeah. Part of the reason for that, honestly, is uh, not just Tampa, but just like Florida in general has gotten um, the scenes around here are, are picking up, yeah. you know, so Orlando's got a cool scene, you know, West Palm and Miami have a cool mm-hmm. scene, Gainesville, Jacksonville, they have cool scenes. So like before, you know, you'd either have, you basically, you have to really commit to Florida if you're going to come here, yeah, you know, yeah. cause it's not worth it to just hit Tampa and leave, you know, you got to hit Tampa and Orlando and go to South Florida, you know, and hit somewhere, you know, going up North on your way to wherever you're going after. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, and the, that's the thing with Orlando. I mean, it, it would take a special, like, band for me to go over to, to brave Orlando to go. Yeah, but. it's funny because we talk to people all the time on this podcast who are like, yeah, I drove four hours for this show and blah, blah, blah. But yeah. I was like, man, I'm, yeah, I don't even want to drive across the bridge to St. Pete. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I know this, uh, this indie band, Bell and Sebastian, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Yeah, yeah. They've never played Florida, and I liked them since the mid-90s, and they finally played in, you know, they played in Orlando, but I went to see them because I'm like, yeah, it's they're to never going to come uh, yeah. you know, again. Uh, new pornographers, uh, Nico Case played mm-hmm. in Orlando. We, we drove out there, but it's few and far between. Now, if there's anything even 
I'm like, oh, I like 50% or songs now. I'm past. <laughs> <laughs> so when is uh, the, uh, the Cigar City death metal book coming out? Yeah. yeah that's it, what I want to read be now. a really good book. Yeah, yeah. That would be a good one. Because there's a lot of like, you know, I mean, that's that was kind of the the haven for death metal for a while. Was yeah, there, Morrisound you know? Studios up in Temple Terrace yeah. was the place they, they recorded a lot of that. Uh, yeah, and that scene, you know, uh, you know, the bands are still there. I know Obituary still tours quite a bit. I think yeah. I think they were on the part of Slayer's last tour, this past tour they did, which is Slayer's final tour. Yeah. They were on a number of their shows. I went to Slayer's final. Like that, that was one of the shows where I drove, you know, me and my buddy drove to Orlando to see okay. that, you know, because <laughs> it was like Slayer's final tour. Yeah, I've seen they them a few coming times. To Tampa. So I was like, oh, yeah. Know, but, uh, I saw them on the, the only other time I'd seen them was when they did, uh, it was like the tw- 20, 20th anniversary or 25th anniversary of Rain and Blood or whatever. And they were performing the album from beginning to end. Nice. And I was, remember being stoked about that fact. I was like, that's really awesome. They're doing beginning to end. And then when they played it, I realized I was like, that's like a 20 minute album. Yeah. <laughs> like, it it's is. really not that. It's a very, very <laughs> yeah, quick album. so yeah. fast. You know, like you know, some bands have one song that's longer than, than that whole album, you know? So it's, it was, uh, but it was still awesome. And you know, their, their final tour was, was really cool. And, um, at the Orlando Amphitheater, which I didn't know was a, th- a I place. I didn't know that was a place. Either. Yeah, it's uh, they they got to get some some things worked out yeah. there. But it was a uh, it was an interesting spot. Well, you bring one other quick thing about that too is the other thing that that I don't like are the great shows that I want to see that are in the middle of the summer outside. Like oh. Janelle Monae played yeah. Janice live, and I'm like that'd be such a great show to see. I'm not going to Janice live in the middle of July. Oh. well, you missed out because that show was brought to you by our sponsors. No clubs and state media. Visit uh, noclubs.com. <laughs> Tell them to go. put big air conditions out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's get let's get big like uh, but like, it sold yeah. out anyway, so I actually but uh and yeah. then uh, Metallica played the citrus bowl in last summer. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, no. Although I will say I'd, I'd much rather go to an outside show in Tampa than outside show in Orlando. Because at least we get this the breeze and a little a little bit. It gets hot there. Yeah. But uh they need to build more. Like I was thinking about that when I uh my New Jersey friends were in town and we went to like the Ben T. Davis area, you know, yeah. over there. And I was like, man, they should put a cool venue like right here on the water. That'd be you know? a great idea. But so you know, if they had something like right overlooking the water, yeah, that'd be really neat. Yeah. Like just move out Hogan's Beach and all that and just put in a kick ass venue. Well, they used to know? have shows up there. Uh, Clearwater over there. I remember going to a few of those. I mean, it wasn't anything super big. And th- there for a while they had uh, shows on uh, Clearwater Beach. Um, back in the mid nineties, but they stopped doing that. First of all, Clearwater beach getting to it. <laughs> it was a little yeah, bit of a nightmare, but yeah, uh, but uh, yeah. So, all right. I guess just last questions as a Tampa guy, you know, as a, somebody who, uh, you know, is into history and everything around here, how do you feel about the Rays potentially moving to Ebor? Do you think it's going to happen? Do you think it's a good idea? Uh, as a St. Pete resident, I hope it happens. Cause okay. I think, uh, a couple of reasons, you know, we gave it a shot. It didn't work. Let it go. Yes. That, um, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. St. Pete is booming right now. That land is extremely valuable and would be a, a huge, a huge boon to have a, of a city on the upswing like St. Pete to suddenly have that much land available for development, I think would be good for, for a variety of purposes, whether it be mixed use or an expansion of USS St. Pete or, I mean, there are a no number of proposals for that. Um, I think if you're going to make it work in Tampa, that somewhere out here in the Ebor to maybe a little bit further east area would probably be your best bet. 
the problem, though, is going to be, I mean, you know how it is. Even on a good day, traffic is bad. That's going to be the challenge, yeah. I think. Well, the funding is always the challenge, but I think the challenge is going to get, is going to, you know, deal with, with the traffic off of I-4. Traffic off of I-4, that malfunction junction, and parking on a good day in Ebor. Yeah, that oh, was going to be, yeah, the parking will be a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it'll be a yeah. boon for the business here, but unless you can figure out a way to address that, um, that that's going to be the big challenge. I, I think it can work. I mean, look at, you know, the lightning and part of it too is the, the product. I mean, Tropicana fields, eh, not, I'm not yeah. a huge baseball fan, but even Tropicana field does make you want to be a huge baseball fan. Yeah. Um, but you, you know, you go to see a lightning game, even if you're not a hockey fan, you leave with a really good fan experience. So I think if they can do that here in Ebor, that might work. But, you know, and the other thing is, uh, it was funny because I was just reading something the other day about the median age of, you know, baseball fans is like creeping up. Yeah. It's like 58 or 59. Man. Whereas NBA is like 26 or 26. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. Like, I don't know anybody like, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I don't know that many people that are into baseball. Yeah, so like you, I am. And I spend that. Kind yeah. Of, I, I, but I I'm into it do. because my dad got me into it. Yeah. And that's like how so, it works. You and, know, I'm but, just, and I'm just yeah. thinking that solely from a, from a financial perspective, uh, if the city would want to do it. But from a St. Pete resident, I, I think it's a good thing if they leave. Um, no, I think no, I, I agree is. with no, you. I think most I people no, think that. Yeah, yeah. If I, didn't know, if I didn't know what you were talking about, <laughs> you said that. Go. I'd, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, we'll, but it's true. We, yeah, we'll back, and I don't know if you guys remember, but back the um, the lightning played in St. Peter originally. Yeah, the, first the Thunderdome. Yeah, right? yeah, the yeah. Thunderdome. I I used to think probably would have been good if we kept hockey, and because you know a lot of Canadians on the beaches and stuff, we probably yeah. could have mm-hmm. done very well with hockey, and then baseball would have you know started off in Tampa, might have had a, had a more stable uh, more, more stable fan base, and and I think the big thing too is the corporate support. Yeah. You'll probably get a lot more corporations, especially from downtown Tampa, supporting them if they were in Ebor. So long story short, if you guys can pay for it, I think it might work. So good deal. No, I'm not, I'm not paying for it. That's <laughs> that's what well, everybody you, says. Like, I'm not paying for it. Oh, yeah, we're going to pay for it somewhere, sure. somewhere or another, uh, whether through increased tolls or something else.